Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you for being our listener. We have the greatest people in the world listening to this show. So thank you for being here. Our special guest, Stephanie Brown, is a songwriter and educator. She is a role model to many and is still writing songs since it all began in 1975. As a songwriter, some of the artists who have recorded her work would include Garth Brooks, Daryl and Don Ellis, Georgia Middleman, and others. Stephanie C. Brown, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. I'm glad you're here. I'm very glad to be here. So I think most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Uh, Florence, Alabama, which, of course, is sometimes grouped with muscle shows. What about when you started to write? What are your earliest memories with writing things? Oh, when um, I was maybe in the first grade, going through Mother's, all the different things, I found a little story I had written in, you know, a composition book. That was about a goat that drove a car and smoked cigarettes. So that's the first I remember. And then maybe when I was in the sixth grade, I remember writing a story and sending it handwritten to a major magazine, not knowing that that's not how you do it. So I've been writing forever. I didn't realize I was a songwriter until 75, so that was uh, other people had to convince me that uh, what I was doing was actually songwriting. And how did they convince you? I was selling printing, and I went into a studio widget here in Muscle Shows to collect a printing bill, and... Ron Ballou was talking to me, and I was telling him he owed us money, and he stopped me and asked what I had to do with music, and I told him nothing, and he said that I was being pulled to the session that was going on downstairs so much that I couldn't talk to him, and I still said nothing, and he asked if I wrote, and I said, everybody writes. And his answer was, no, they don't. And he asked me to bring in some of those things I had written. I went in with a Tide box, you know, that used to do that as filing cabinets, a little Tide box with envelopes, slips of paper, just things I had written. And he read through them and looked at me and said, do you realize there's a hook on every page? And I said, what's a hook? because I really didn't know. And Ron worked with me and convinced me that I was, in fact, a songwriter. I do not play, and I don't sing. So I always work with a melody person, though I have melodic input. So that's where I started. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about the, you know, you you were saying that you're, 
It's words for you, but nonetheless, what music did you enjoy when you were growing up? I don't remember my family having a radio. Surely we did. My first memories start in about Sarah, Sarah, and, you know, the Rosemary Clooney, Patty Page, all of those. And now I do have melodic input. There are times I sit down at the piano and I can pick out one little finger, a melody line. And the guys I write with say that I'm jazz-oriented. And definitely, I go back to, you know, the 50s for what I'm hearing. And co-writers are younger, so what I'm doing sounds new to them, but it's really not. I don't Hmm. often pick out melodies, but sometimes I do. And one of my co-writers, Mark Normal, really likes it when he comes in and I have, you know, a lyric sheet with notes above it. But that doesn't happen too often. Normally, a co-writer comes in and we sort of toss ideas back and forth. And once we get started, I mean, we're always together. I never hand anybody a sheet of paper. Barry Beckett told me not to do that that if anyone wanted to write with me, then I needed to be in the room. And that was good advice. So when we're writing, we're just sort of forming as we go. And I have input, you know, like I'll say, my hands always go, stretch that out, go up, go down. This doesn't sound right. That, But basically, I am words. Although in the session, ideas and images more than actually metered lines, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who would you say the lyricists are that have had the biggest influence on you? I'm thinking of teens, lyrics. I'm sorry. I just don't. Nothing. No one comes to mind. No worries. How would you describe Muscle Shoals? The most wonderful place in the world. (laughs) I left it for, oh, 11 years. I was in Nashville. And in 75, Muscle Shoals was hard for me. I was a female in a studio. The only female that was just a writer. The rest of them were background singers or something. And it was hard. I was told one time that I was good, but I was a female, and that females cause problems in studios. So I left, taught school, and got back in in the 80s, maybe. And it was better. Worked with Walt Aldrich, which Walt signed me as a writer at Fame, and I had taught him in the 10th grade. So for Walt to sign a female who was 40, that speaks really well for him. And it shows how the town has sort of shifted. So, But I'm back in muscle shows, and I love it. It's, of course, known for its earlier days, but there's a lot going on now very creative, and 
it's definitely a music town that is sort of coming back, if that makes sense. There was a period of time that people knew Muscle Shows for, you know, all the hits that had come out of here. But what was going on wasn't as well known. But we're coming back. So it's a great town. I'm hoping you can tell us a little more about Walt Aldrich. Some of the listeners might know that name, but he's a great songwriter that no doubt has written songs that they know. What is he like? Walt, I taught him, which he was in the 10th grade. Walt is a kid who sits in the classroom, very smart. And when he says something, it's uh, not sarcastic, but it's sort of an aside. Very, very smart. And when he signed me as a writer, he had just started running the publishing company at Fame. And again, I look back on it. And I'm not sure I see what he saw, but I was 40 and he signed me. He has obviously gone on and and done wonderful things. He was interesting to work with. Like I said, he's sort of quiet and it's hard at first to know how Walt's feeling or, you know, his response to anything. But those first years, and this was like 82, something like that, he and I spent, you know, I'd go in and Walt and I'd be in Studio B. So we spent a lot of time together. And I learned a lot about writing there. Tommy Brassfield was there, and of course, Recall. So that, you know, I learned a lot there. But then I took... uh, a break. I have a love-hate relationship with the music business. I took a break, taught school, ended up going to Nashville, stayed there, came home, and was out of the music business for 12 years. People here didn't even know I was a writer because I was my friends, you know, were, I was teaching at UNA, and they just didn't know. And then in Oh, when Garth got Entertainer of the Decade, he mentioned me. One of the first things he said was, you know, I want to thank Stephanie Brown, where it all started. And then people knew that I was actually a songwriter, too. Sort of got off the wall to Aldrich questions. (laughs) No, but what you said was good here. That break, you said it was 12 years that you you weren't involved in the music business. So you didn't write any songs during that period? Uh, Not at all. That wasn't the first break I took. I got in in 75. I stayed about three years, started teaching again. I was out that time five years or so, got back in, stayed a little while, and then went to Nashville for 11 years, came home, went back one time, and then I came home, and 12 years, I was out. I had had some experiences in Nashville that sort of broke my heart, and I came home, put all my files, all my tapes in storage and I'd cry when I listened to my songs and I was 
put them back and didn't touch them. So, like I said, love-hate relationship. And then when Garth came back, I realized that I didn't have my business taken care of and that obviously I should. So I contacted the person I had worked with in Nashville and Mike O'Rear came in and helped me get it back on track. And I went in, still I didn't intend to write, and I went into a studio because his grandkids had a session, went into Wishbone, Walt Aldridge, Mike Chapman. I mean, I knew everybody. And uh, Will McFarlane wanted to write with me. So I told him I hadn't written anything. And I told him I would do it, but I had to have three ideas and be prepared before I came in. And it took me, oh, I don't know, a month before we got together and hasn't stopped since then. Hmm. So what does it feel like to write a song? It's the freest thing I've ever done. When you're writing a song, nothing exists except the people in the room with you and what you're creating. And I can't write with just anyone. I'm writing with, oh, I don't know, seven, eight people now. And I have to connect with that person. So it's sort of like a therapy session. It's like creative. It's wonderful. Who was the first recording artist to record a Stephanie C. Brown song? I'm Marie Osmond, the B-side of a single. I was at Fame at the time, and I wrote that song with Bob Gorfrey. And, you know, that was a big deal to me. And I haven't had a lot of cuts. I really haven't. Not as many as people think I have. But that was the first one. Oh, oh, I take it back. The first one was with a band called... I was a little rock band, and they took one of my songs, and they sort of changed the meaning of the song, and it was, I want to slip into something more comfortable, and they sort of took the rock approach on it. So I think the first one, and then the Marie Osmond one. What did that feel like to hear a recording of something that you wrote for the very first time. I was excited, awed. It felt good. The one by the little rock band, I laughed because it was so sensual. And they took it so, it was just a funny. I was thinking clothes, they weren't. And I laughed. I mean, that was a funny experience but i was glad to get the cut <laughs> tell us about your experiences in nashville nashville has a reputation from a lot of people that it's a very tough town that's what i hear people say what did you find nashville to be like i went in 85 i had uh, i've already commented on in the 70s music business was difficult for me as a female I went to Nashville at Barry Beckett's 
suggestion because he has been definitely or was a mentor for me. And I feel like a red carpet was laid out for me. Looking back on it, I realized I had the benefit of people from Muscle Shows who were already there talking about me. But I didn't realize that every meeting, I was just happy. And I always felt like there was a new door to go through and that I was on the right path. It was hard uh, as a songwriter, brand new, and as a lyricist, basically, and 40. Looking back on it, I realize how remarkable my life has been, but I didn't see it then. I was just doing what I had to do. And so Nashville was a wonderful town for me. Started as a writer. Then I ended up with a publishing company because I was taking songs of friends in, right? school teacher. So obviously I was helping other writers. And I took some songs into Barry Beckett that friends had written and that I had recorded on a little fort track in my house. And I was playing them to him. And he told me I should open a publishing company. And I told him I wouldn't know how. And he pointed out that what I was doing was what a publisher did. So I started a pub, actually two publishing companies, Golden Ladder Music and Silver Cradle Music. And at that point, I was working with other writers. And I think it slowed me down as a writer because people looked at me as a publisher. And I was working the catalogs by going in and playing the songs to A&R people and producers, because in those days, you could walk in a door and sit down and play a song face-to-face with a producer or an A&R person. So that went from being a publisher, and Garth actually was one reason I started the publishing company because I was working with him. I wanted him to go on to work with other people, but also I recognized that I needed to have a structure in place. So if I met another Garth, I would be ready, because with Garth, I wasn't. And I'm one who told him to go on, that he had to have someone with money and influence, and I didn't have anyone. So that's sort of why the publishing companies were started. Well, on the note of Garth Brooks, what was your first impression of him when you met him, and where did you first encounter him? You know, Garth came to town and stayed a day or two, went back, and then came back. He was staying with a friend that I had worked with, Bob Childers from Oklahoma. And Bob called me and said, hey, there's this kid in town. Will you come out and hear him? So I went to Windows on the Cumberland. Garth played. I was impressed. He ended up, Garth and 
the band that he came to town with, we ended up going to my apartment because there was a song Bob Childers had written that I loved the lyric, but I didn't think the melody was right. So I suggested that Garth and Bob work on the song. So at night, they got together. And it was really funny because Bob was willing for someone to do a melody, but yet no meter, no anything could change in what he did. So eventually they sorted it out. And I recorded it. I had a little four track. And when Garth got through, he said, ma'am, is that okay? And my answer was, kid, could you do that one more time for me? And this time, do it with some feeling. So that's where we started. (laughs) And I think because of that, Garth to this day knows I will never tell him anything just to be nice. When he asks me something, he gets what I think. So we've remained close. We've taken breaks from our friendship. Not from our friendship, but our contact and being communicating with each other. And rambling conversation, I'm so sorry. No, no. Back to Garth. He and I, to back up to that night, at that point, I was coming and going from Nashville back to Muscle Shucks, and I played the tape on my way home, and I thought, God, this kid is marvelous, and when I got back to Nashville, I called Bob and said, hey, look, I need to meet that kid again, and we met and just connected, and in those days, we went to writer's nights together. We were songwriters, just, you know, going to writer's nights, being totally immersed in the music business, and we've, like I said, that connection is still there. There's a song that you wrote with Garth that we were talking about online a few weeks ago. And I always thought that on that album that it came out on, Rope in the Wind, it's a very distinctive song. And for the listeners out there, the song is called Burning Bridges. What inspired that? Yes. Funny story on that. (laughs) Well, at the point that was written, I had a house with three apartments. or I lived in one. Garth and Sandy lived in one. And... We wrote every week, and we got together to write, and he told me he wanted to write Burning Bridges. And I said, well, I don't, because it's been done. There's nothing new to say about it. And, you know, he sort of, I don't remember what we worked on that day. And the next week, he came back and said, I know you don't want to write this with me, but listen. And he played me the first two lines. Yesterday, she thanked me for all in that front door. This morning, when she wakes up, she won't be thankful anymore. And I said, yes, I'll write it with you. So we wrote it. (laughs) He's wonderful to write with. Some people think that he 
just puts his name on things. He's one of the best writers I've ever written with. <laughs> so that day, I remember, I mean, I can see him sitting on the couch with his guitar, and he, and we were working on it, and the part I remember so well was getting the image of those ashes floating away. And I, I get sort of excited when I'm writing. So, you know, I can remember saying, oh, 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 I see a bridge burning in their ashes floating away. And, of course, he immediately put it in. Because my co-writers have to do the meter and then rhyme, and usually I'm getting better at that. Uh, images and little lines. So we wrote the song. And when it was on the album, that wasn't necessarily the song we had written that I would have chosen. But I understand, looking back, I understand, yes, it was a really good song. Because when you write, the last song you wrote is the greatest one. And it's hard to have any perspective on your own songs. So I didn't realize how great's not the word, but how people connected with that song. And it took me a while to realize what a good song it was. It is a good song, absolutely. This is always difficult when you ask writers of anything, books, songs, scripts. But could you say that there is a song of yours that means the most to you? Um, yeah, that is a hard question. I've written one called One Moment All Time. I wrote it with Mark Normore. The melody started with me. In fact, he says the melody is mine because I had so much of it. Sort of jazzy. It makes the point that, you know, when you love someone, that one moment within that moment all time, that song means a lot to me. Right now, I'm writing what I call my legacy songs because I'm 75. So I want my songs to really mean something. And But that one, if someone were to say, okay, the best song you've written, I choose one moment all the time. Have a full demo of it, but it's never been cut by anybody. Hmm. Not yet. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm truly in my legacy period. It's hard for me at this point to write a hook. I have to be invested in some way. I have to feel like the song is actually saying something and that when people listen, it will say something that perhaps they couldn't say because that's what every songwriter wants is for other people to listen and say, wow, that's exactly how I feel. So, you know, right now, very much, I want songs that mean something, songs that will touch people. The person who works on catalog would be happier if I write the catchy, up-tempo, you know, songs that are easy to pitch. But it's just not where I am right now. I'm hoping you can tell us about 
this thing that you're involved with. It's a monthly writers group. Yes, that uh, sort of fell together. In Nashville, I had a at Douglas Corner. I had a monthly show that was called Circle of Friends, and that one was sort of different because it was totally a showcase. The one I'm doing now, it's for songwriters only. Of course, with COVID nineteen, we're not meeting. We can't do this, but it's in a small art center and only songwriters would sit in a circle. The rule is no introductions. You give your name, but you don't talk about what you've done. You don't give a backstory for the song. Just one guitar goes around. You play your song. Guitar goes and you play another. Maybe five, six in the audience that invitation only for this for songwriters and for the audience. And the group really became close. And a lot of co-writing started out of that. People, you know, songwriters met other songwriters. And it did sort of start a new songwriter community. And one thing I was very proud of in it is some circles, we'd have at least half females, and that's unusual to see any writers around anything unless someone has made an effort. Generally, females are not as well represented. And sort of one songwriter would tell me they'd like to invite another songwriter, and I had to keep the number small because we were in one room and it's a circle. So it's sort of limited on that. I think the first one, there were about 12 writers. And on that one, I called Will McFarlane, Mark Narmore, Michael Curtis, and I'm leaving someone out. And I told them, okay, this is our time to give back. And they, Will McFarlane, more or less hosts, not he doesn't, he's the MC or whatever. He's the one that starts it. And, you know, so that was the first one, maybe 12 writers. And the last one we had had like 22 or 23. It was getting to the point that I was had to not include some people, you know, not ask new people because the, so the rule was, once you've played circle, you can come. You play circle again. So I would send out Facebook, you know, event notifications. And you know, they had to let me know who was going to be there. So I would know if I had extra seats. But that was, uh, people said that it was almost like going to church. Very, I was amazed how a writer would sit there and play a song, listen to over 20, play one more song, listen to over 20. But they did. I mean, it was total silence, just silence. And people played their maybe new song, song they weren't ready to play out, song that was so personal. It was really... Circle of Friends song uh, circle 
really turned into a really, I think, unique. Everybody said it was different than anything they had ever done. Yeah, I'm really proud of Song Circle because I see what some of the people who were pulled in, what they've done since then. And that started, I think we did 13 or 14 of them. And a lot of the writers were, well, almost all of them weren't, quote, hit songwriters. They weren't signed songwriters. They were just these people who wrote songs because they loved writing songs. And some wonderful artists, you know, people were pulled in. And I couldn't help the fact that some of them were so great at guitar playing and singing. But somehow the ones who barely played, who maybe played with a shaking voice or whatever, it was open enough and warm enough that those people felt at home and willing to share. And that always impressed me, that there was such a wide range of talents and even songs. And people got better because you sit in a group and you hear these wonderful songs and you go home and you raise the bar a little bit. So... Yeah, I'm really proud of of Circle and the part that I've played in Muscle Shows. I think there would not be as many songs written if not for me, because I'm the one who pushes everybody for appointments. You know, I'll get in touch and say, hey, what can you write? I pull combinations together. People have been in this town forever, but have never written together. So I'm sort of, I've been called the clue that keeps everything together. And that's sort of my role. Rick Hall called me a catalyst. And like I said, I've been told I'm the blue. Uh, I'm not, since I don't play, I don't sing. I'm just sort of there behind the scenes, <laughs> pulling the strings more or less, or, you know, just helping other people do what they perhaps wouldn't do without my help. So I'm right now very humble. People talk about what I'm doing, and to me, it's not actually me. It's the energy that I've tapped into, and it's the energy of all the people that are working together. So I had a really good demo situation going, which really pulled musicians, songwriters, and people together. new person came to town, Charles Holliman. He bought two studios. One of them was Widget, and he says I stalked him, but I had to meet him. I mean, he bought Widget where I started, and I started, we met, and he asked about the town, and I started talking and explaining, and I just stopped and said, hey, I've done this before, and this time, I'm not going to do it for free, and he asked me what I wanted, and I said, studio time with all, studio time, mix time, an engineer to catch me up on my catalog, 
And at that point, I think I had 18 songs that I had, you know, sort of, since I was back. And he said, fine. And so I got a studio for free. I was writing with almost a whole band. I had Will McFarlane on guitar, Milton Sledge on drums. We did call in David Hood for bass. And again, I'm leaving people out. But because the band had written some of the songs, it was a swap out. And we'd walk walk out with these wonderful demos, full demos. And it didn't cost people much of anything because they would play it on their own songs. And my part was that studio time. And at that point, we had something going that was called, I called them the East Avalon Gang. And you know how that goes. You have a group of people and then sort of we... People go in different directions, and you still are close, but it's not, you're not working together all the time. And I'm known for my soup, so every session, you know, there was a big pot of soup and pretty laid back. And people, um, I just believe in sessions where there are actually people on the floor, everybody cutting at the same time. And everyone, the musicians, it's already to the point that sometimes they were called in to put on a part on something that was already done. So those sessions really brought some people together, and we're all still close. And there's a lot of co-writing that goes on between that first, you know, group. So I had Mike Curtis. And... Since then, I've started working with Cindy Walker, one of the Shoals sisters, which we go back to the very early Witchet days. She came to town at 18, 17, and she was sent to Widget to write with me because she was so strong in melody and I was so strong in lyric. And so Cindy and I, worked together at, at Widget, and then, you know, she went on with the show sisters, and I got out sick for a while, and we reconnected about three years ago, and now we write together in full circle. So that's going on with me a lot, the full circle <laughs> situation. So, What would you say you're the most proud of? Um, actually, I was just doing a blog entry trying to figure that out. People, a lot of people, if asked about me, will say, I discovered Garth Brooks, that I'm involved in music. But when I look back on it, I was also a school teacher. And to me, that's more important. People have uh, this love affair with the music, and they put more importance on that, I think, than on other things that are perhaps more important. But I've sort of changed and realized that, yes, my songwriting and my part in Garth's career, that has been important, and I've 
I've backed off of this attitude. I want to be known for something I did, not for something Garth did. But I was at a concert, and he acknowledged me on the stage, and I was in the audience. And, you know, they did the thing. My picture was on the big screen. And when I was leaving that concert, four or five people stopped me. And one of them said, you know, without you, there might not have been a Garth Brooks. And that's not true, but that that sort of changed how I looked at that because he has done so much and he does his songs mean something. And I'm I'm really proud of Garth. And at that point I just sort of realized that yes, my time in Nashville meeting Garth and what I did for him, he says I'm where it started. That's that is something to be proud of. So yes, I've learned that perhaps what I'm doing in music is important. But it's taken the last um five years for me to recognize that. Because hmm. I'm you know, being a teacher you really give a lot and you influence a lot. So there was one time I'd immediately say teaching, but now I look at it and I see my part, understand more of what I've done for music and through Garth for the world. So, so I guess I am proudest of what I've done in music. Not of my own songs, but the influence I've had for other people. Because to me, that's what I do. I help people. I bring people together. I see other people's talents. And that and Garth, I would say, important. Of course, I'm a mother. Like I said, I've been a teacher. But you just sort of assume the family part is what you're proud of. That's just an assumption. I'm a mother. so. I always like to give the guest the microphone at the end. You just never know who is listening. You never know who you're reaching at any time. But for anyone who's tuned in, wherever they are, whenever they hear this, what would you say to that person? Totally open-ended. I follow your heart. Find, find your passion, and it's not true that follow your passion and everything will work out, but you do have to be true to that passion. Some of my leaving the music business was because I tried to be something that I really didn't fit, and so I would tell a person, find out what you really love and do that. Find out what you lose yourself in. What when you're walk away from it, you feel good. So I guess find what you love to do, and don't don't block and you know, don't block yourself with thinking what other people might think. Just do something for the art of it, because you can't always get paid for what you do, <laughs> and other people are not always going to like what you do, but. There's the, if you ever get to the point 
that you're doing it for the art of it, then you're happy. Well put. And that's why I'm in my legacy period, because I'm trying to pull together things I've done, not the commercial ones, but things that are from my heart and that I consider are art songs. Well, Stephanie C. Brown, thank you very, very much for giving of your time. Thank you for being a guest on the show. Well, you're more than welcome. And I'm sorry I rambled so much, but hopefully you found out or I shared things that uh, will be interesting. I found it very interesting. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Thank you. And have a wonderful Saturday. Well, you too. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Written by Irving Berlin. Performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things. Improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.